Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to Northridge Church. Really glad you're here. Uh, so want to put just one more plug, what Tanya said about Christmas Sunday, next Sunday, communion, and then Thursday, our Christmas candlelight services. And for those of you who are regularly part of Northridge, you come on a regular basis, you know, you kind of you roll with us, you've been rolling with us for a while, you know what I'm about to say, especially for the Christmas candlelight services, just like on Jingle Jam, just so that you know, we had almost 500 people packed into this building here on Friday night. All right, it was crazy. It was crazy awesome, but it was crazy. Uh, Christmas candlelight, we're gonna have a ton of people here, okay? So Northridgers, those of you that regularly attend Northridge, you know what I'm about to say. When you get here, get here early, park far away, and sit really close. Yes? Get here early, park far away, and sit really close and in the middle, right? Do not take the best seats. Because why do we do that? It's very, very, very simple and very important. We want people to know what it looks like for us to serve them and love them before we meet them. Yes? Northridgers, you guys do this. Some of you do this on a regular basis. You park in the furthest lots away from the building. Good. Keep doing that. Do that all the time. But especially on these big times, right, Christmas candlelight services, make sure you park far away and sit close, all right? So I'm looking forward to I hope you are. This is going to be a blast. We have uh, some cool things planned, and God is going to move. We're expecting that. We're praying for that, and we're ready for that. So uh, thank you for being here. So I have a question for you, and the question is this. How many of you love waiting? How many of you just love it? I mean, it is awesome. You love waiting. How many of you are waiting for me to put my hand down? I know, it's awkward, right? No, nobody likes waiting. How many of you love when you get to the airport and it looks like this? Take a look at this. How many of you love that? You're like, yes, it's going to be an hour and a half. And I get to go through metal detectors. This is going to be great. Or it looks maybe like this. Maybe this next one. Yes! That's a little more, right? Woo! You don't know how many times you're going to go back and forth, but it's probably going to be 37, right? Right? How many of you just love that when you get to the airport and you see that? Man, this is going to be so good, especially with my kids. Yay! Right? How many of you love when you go to the grocery store to get two items and you get there and there's only one line open and the checkout line looks like that. Yes! How many of you get excited? All right? How many of you go to an amusement park and you see that the line is all the way backed up to the wait sign and it says something like this? It's going to be 70 minutes. Yay! Yeah, I've got a couple Disney takers over there. They go every year. They're like, yeah, we get it. Slinky dog, we love it. By the way, Slinky Dog is one that has the longest lines, and let me tell you, because I've been to that one, all right? Waiting, right? Now, let, let's be honest. I think one of the favorite things, one of the favorite days in the human existence was when February 20, 2005, when Amazon came up with something called Amazon Prime, because why? Because we get two-day delivery. I don't have to wait anymore, although now the supply lines are messed up, right? And now it's like three to four days, and we're going like, Amazon, you're worthless. How many have complained about it? I've heard some in my household. I 
can't believe it. I ordered that. I was supposed to come today. It's coming tomorrow at like 10. Why? Because we hate waiting. So the question I have for you is this. What are you waiting for? What are you waiting for today? What are you waiting for? So today we're going to continue the series that we started a couple of weeks ago. This is our third week called Peace? Question mark? Really? At Christmas? Peace? Where is it? Where is peace? Does it really exist? Can we really experience God's peace? And we're going to talk about how do we experience peace while we have to wait on God. How can we experience God's peace when we have to wait on him to do whatever he does? And so that's the question that we're going to talk about. Now, if you think about it, we are not the only human beings who have had to wait on God. If you think about the whole basic story of the Bible, the Israelites, the Jewish people, they had to learn how to wait on God. Let me kind of illustrate this. So I want to take you back in the Bible all the way to the very first book of the Bible. Genesis. Actually, the word Genesis means origin or beginning. So we're going to be in the book of Genesis, chapter 3. I'm going to read for you something in a moment, but let me set up the context. So God creates the whole world, right? The planets, the earth, mountains, plants, animals, and then the crowning achievement, he creates humanity, Adam and Eve, and he places Adam and Eve in the perfect garden, the Garden of Eden, right? You're tracking with me. Creates everything, Adam and Eve, in the perfect garden, Garden of Eden. Everything is awesome. God gives them one rule, one law only. He says, you cannot eat of the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden. It's the only thing you can't do. Don't eat the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden. It's not going to go well for you if you do. The problem is that there was this serpent, this snake, in the garden. Now, we think of snake, right? Physical snake, yeah, okay, get it. But the snake was the form of Satan, of the devil. And the snake, Satan, tempts Adam and Eve to eat the fruit from the tree that God said don't eat from. Sadly, they give in. They give in, they eat the fruit, and now they've committed sin. They've rebelled against God, and sin enters our world and enters humanity. And in that moment, God has to confront the snake, Satan, Adam, and Eve. And there's a moment when God is confronting the snake, confronting Satan. He's talking to him and explaining what's going to happen now, the curse of sin. And then there's this really weird verse. Those of you that have read Genesis, you might know where I'm going with this. There's this really strange verse, this weird thing that God says when he's talking to the, the snake, to Satan. And he says this, and it's a weird, strange verse, especially for Christmas. And so I want to read it. It's what God says to the snake in that moment when he's explaining what's going to happen because of the curse of sin that has just entered the world. Listen to what he says. Genesis chapter 3 Verse 15, this is the NIV version. God says, and I will put enmity, that's hostility or conflict, I will put hostility between you, the Satan, the serpent, and the woman, 
and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Merry Christmas. <laughs> Is that not the weirdest verse you've ever heard preached on at Christmas time? Right? It is for me. I'm like, really? This is where we're going, God? Like, Genesis 3? Weird verse, right? Weird verse. What is God talking about? God says to the servant, he says, so, so there's going to be a future time. Okay, what, what is he saying? There's going to be a future time where a woman is going to give birth to a son. To, your, to her offspring. And it does, by the way, it does not say a man and a woman. It says just a woman. It's going to be the woman's offspring. It's not going to be a man and a woman's offspring. It's going to be the woman's offspring. Hence, you know where we're going here, right? Virgin birth. God says there will be offspring from a woman. A specific boy is going to be born. And he will grow up. And... He says to Satan, you will strike his heel. In other words, he will be crucified on a cross. He will be killed. He will die. You will strike his heel. But this son of the woman, the offspring, will have the last laugh. Because Jesus will crush your head. Jesus will defeat sin. Jesus will defeat death. By not only just dying on the cross, yes, you will strike his heel, but then he will have the last laugh because three days later he will resurrect from the grave, defeating sin and defeating death all in one fell swoop, and he will crush your head, Satan. So trust me, you win today, but we win tomorrow. Amen? <laughs> this is a big deal. In other words, this is a weird verse, but this is God at the very beginning of the world explaining to everybody, and it's recorded in the book of Genesis, that in the future, thousands of years away, there will be an offspring, a son, the son of a woman, his name is Jesus, a Messiah, a Savior, will be born, and he will crush Satan. This is a big deal. This is a big promise. Now, here's the interesting thing. Here's the problem. The Jewish people, the Israelites, they know this, right? They have this. They have the Pentateuch. They have the books of the law. And so they know these things. And so they're watching. They're waiting. They're excited about seeing the Savior, the Messiah. But what happens throughout the Old Testament? No Messiah. <laughs> is it Abraham? He's pretty good. Nope. Is it David? Man, he killed Goliath with a sling and a stone. That's got to be him. He becomes king of Israel. That's a good guy. Nope. Solomon? Nope. One of the prophets? Nope. Okay, God, we're waiting. Right? In the Old Testament, what happens? The Old Testament ends... No Savior. No Messiah. The Old Testament's done. No Jesus. No Savior. 
And then we enter into this time. This is going to be a big word. The intertestamental period. Isn't that a fun one? Again, Merry Christmas to you. (laughs) Right? The intertestamental period. And there's a period of 400 years between the Old Testament and the New Testament. 400 years. Just to put this in perspective, the United States is about 250 years old. We're not even close. We're like, we're just barely over halfway the amount of time that is between the Old Testament and the New Testament. We haven't even existed the time that the intertestamental period happened. So what happened in those 400 years where there's no writings directly in our Bible from God, where God spoke? In fact, a lot of scholars will call this the 400 silent years from God. God doesn't speak. Well, what is God doing while everybody's waiting? What is happening in those 400 years? So let me just pause for a moment and ask you. Imagine how the Jewish people felt. 400 years. They're teaching their kids that God has promised all the way back in Genesis and then in Micah and then on Isaiah and and throughout the Old Testament. God says again and again, I'm sending a Messiah, I'm sending a Savior. And they teach their kids that and their kids teach their kids and their kids teach their kids, 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 kids. 400 years, we're talking about a lot of generations. Imagine the Jewish people saying, Oh, man, I get to teach it again. My great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather, my great-great-great-great-grandmother told me this story, and it's been passed down. Still hasn't come, though. Let me ask you this. Do you sometimes feel like you are in the intertestamental period? Seriously. Do you feel, maybe some of you are there today, maybe some of you are there and you're ready, you've been ready for God to work, to do something in your life. You've been praying for years, you've been praying for decades. You've just been waiting on God to do something, to say something. How many of you in here feel like you're in the silent years with God? If you're going to be honest... And you're waiting, but you don't want to wait. You don't want to wait. Well, I want to give you a promise here today. And I'm going to give it to you in the form of another pastor's quote. You can tell I've been listening to a lot of Craig Rochelle lately. I gave a lot of that last week. But I want to give you something that he says, because even though we don't really want to hear this in the intertestamental period, if you're in the silent years, you're not going to want to listen to this. But I want to give you something that is true, and it's something that we can stake God's word on. He says this, he says, while you are waiting, God is working. You may not even feel it. But while you are waiting, while you are waiting on God, He is working. He's working. 
See, God is always working. But the truth is, can we be honest? God's timing is not our timing. You know what my timing is? Now. <laughs> right? No, seriously, like, I get, I've said this before, I get frustrated when I click on, you know, Google, and, and I search for something, and then I click on the website, and it takes more than about two seconds to pop up. I'm like, ah, oh, come on. My life is terrible. What is the Wi-Fi doing? I, I start thinking about going to the Wi-Fi and resetting the modem because it took two seconds instead of one second, whatever, right? And I'm just like, ah, unbelievable navigation. If it's spinning, like, I need to get there. Let's go. And then she pops up and starts talking to me. I'm like, okay, I feel better now, right? Anybody get that? Right? When I go to the grocery store, I show those pictures. Seriously, though, when I have like three items and there's like four lanes open and there's 27 people in each one, I'm going, oh, couldn't you come at a different time? Don't you know that I need to get my items now because Laura's cooking and I'm hungry. The worst time to go to the grocery store is when you're hungry, by the way. Always spend more money. I don't like waiting, do you? I don't like waiting. I hate it. But let's be honest. God's timing is not our timing. It says in God's word that our life is a mist. It's a vapor. That's not your value. He values you higher than you value yourself. But it is talking about the time of your life. It's a snap to God. Because God has always existed and will always exist. We are a mist. We're a vapor. But God's timing is perfect. In fact, let me read for you what Galatians tells us about the birth of Jesus and how it was the right time. Galatians 4, 4 through 5, it says this. It says, but when the right time came, God sent his son, born of a woman. Do you remember Genesis 3, 15? Born of a woman, the offspring of a woman, was born at the perfect time, subject to the law. God sent him. Why did he send the son to the woman to be born? God sent him to buy freedom for us, for you, for me, for every person. For us who were slaves to the law, we were in bondage to this thing called sin. So that he could adopt us as his very own children. At the perfect time, God sent Jesus. Now, here's the thing. We all get that because we're here. We have Christmas lights. We have Christmas trees. We have jingle bells. We have all that. We're like, we know it's Christmas, so we're celebrating the birth of Jesus. We all know that. Of course it was the right time. We changed our calendar to work around it. B.C., 0, A.D., everything's organized around the birth of Jesus. This is awesome. Yes, we get it. It was the perfect time. It didn't probably feel like the perfect time to the Jewish people, though. They've been waiting for thousands of years. 400 years in the intertestamental period where nothing was said directly to the Bible by God. They probably didn't feel like it was perfect. They'd been waiting a long time. But the truth is, it was the perfect time. Because the truth is that while we are waiting, God is working. Now, you might be wondering, why did God send Jesus at that moment, at that time? Right? 
That would be a good question, right? I mean, why did he make the Israelites wait that 400 years in between the Testaments? Why did God make the Israelites wait for thousands of years talking about, preaching about a Messiah, and he never came, never came, never came, never came, never got there? Oh, here we go. Thousands of years later, why did God choose to send Jesus in that moment? Well, I'll be honest, that's a hard question. It's going to be hard for me to answer, but I'm going to give you a couple of possibilities today of why God sent Jesus in the moment that he did. Now, let me ask you, let me just pause for a second. I'm, I'm just curious in what I'm dealing with in the room here, all right? You guys know I'd like to pause for a moment and sometimes do this. How many of you would admit today that you actually like history? Anybody in here willing to admit that? All right, awesome. Some of you are just being nice to me. That's awesome. Some of you are being really honest. You're like, I hate history. That's why I kept my hand out. Cool. All right, that's very good. For those of you that had your hands up, you're going to enjoy the next five minutes. For those of you that didn't, you're going to hate it. Just deal with it. You'll be fine. Merry Christmas. Right? So let me give you some, some background of what was happening in that 400 years between the Old Testament and the New Testament in world history. I used to teach world history. You guys know, I was a public school teacher before I became a pastor, right? So I used to teach this stuff. So there was this, na the name of this guy, we've probably heard of him. His name is Alexander the Great. Anybody heard of Alexander the Great? Okay. You know what Alexander the Great did in that intertestamental period of time, that 400 years? It was kind of earlier on. It was like in the 300s BC. He did something kind of big. He conquered the known world. By the way, when you conquer the world, they add the great at the end of your name. <laughs> Woo! Right? Brent the Great. Doesn't have the same ring to it. I don't know why. It's kind of pathetic, actually. <laughs> right? Alexander the Great riding Bucephalus, his horse, his, his, his trusty steed, right? Well, Alexander the Great conquers the world, and there's something that happens as a result of that. Alexander the Great was from Macedonia, but he was very closely connected to the Greek people, the Greek peninsula, right? And so he believed, and he was a student of like Aristotle and, and the Greek mythology and all the Greek culture and all that stuff. And so when he conquered the known world, he spread the Greek culture. He actually required people to learn Greek, to study the Greek language and culture, to learn all about that, and promoted Greek culture all throughout Europe and the Mediterranean Sea world and all the way over to Asia. Pretty interesting. Now, I'm going to tell you why that's important here in a minute, so just hold that thought. Alexander the Great conquers the world and spreads Greek everywhere. Okay? Second thing that happens is after Alexander the Great dies then his empire is kind of split up into a whole bunch of different factions and a whole bunch of different rulers come to rule the different regions. And one of the rulers that comes to rule over what is now known as Israel, the Jewish people, this is around 166, 167 BC, something like that. Uh, there's this guy called Antiochus Epiphanes. How do you like that word, right? That name, that is awesome. Antiochus Epiphanes, right? And this is, uh, this is a statue of him, okay? Now, the reason I bring this guy up is because he comes in, when he comes to rule over the region that was known as, you know, today Israel, the Jewish people, he did something that was pretty harsh to them. Not only did he not allow them to worship, to practice their religion, to practice their faith, 
but he actually mocked it and desecrated it. What he did is he came in and he forbid them from actually worshiping God, but then he also went into their temple area and desecrated it by setting up pagan altars and sacrificial things to gods and goddesses of other deities, of other religions, all that stuff, on, in their temple. They desecrated it. This would be, just to put this in perspective, this would be like somebody conquering the United States and then forcing all of our churches to put up pictures and, and, and altars and shrines to Satan and telling us, you have to worship Satan. Just so that we're clear, some of us would have to pay with our lives for that. Because God is very clear we can't do that. The Jewish people did as well. This was a rough, awful time. For them in history. And so I'm thinking that the Jewish people were wondering, God, where are you? What are you doing? You're allowing your temple, your house, to be desecrated by this guy. And by the way, he has a crazy name. Right? They are saying, God, where are you? Are you even listening? Do you even care? But God was listening. God did care because God was working. He was setting the stage for the arrival of Jesus. How was he doing that? Well, I could spend the next several hours. We could be here until the sun goes down explaining it. But let me give you two so that you guys can actually get to lunch. All right? Let me give you two reasons why God was doing what he was doing. But nobody else could see it until hindsight. You know how hindsight's 2020? We can look at this now and understand, but the Jewish people, I'm sure, were like, come on. What are, the, what are two major things that happened as a result of all this stuff that I just shared with you? Well, the first thing is that there was this new language that was created. It didn't happen overnight. It happened over, honestly, probably a couple hundred years. But there's this new language that's called Koine Greek. Right? Called Koine Greek. Koine Greek is very simply the common language of Greek. Now you have classical Greek and you have Koine Greek. Classical Greek, this is very important, classical Greek was, was understood, studied, and read, and spoken by the elite, by the wealthy, by people who were educated. In other words, it was a tiny, 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 tiny percentage of people in the world understood classical Greek. But get this, everybody, even if they were not Greek, understood, at least on some level, Koine Greek. It was a common language. Almost everybody understood it, could read it, and knew it. Koine Greek. In fact, this is really cool, guess what language the New Testament was originally written in? Koine Greek. The entire New Testament, written in Koine Greek. You know, by the way, do you know why God did that? What I just said is really important because what God did is God did not want the, te the New Testament written in a language that only 1% or 2% of the people could actually engage with. You understand what I'm saying? God did not bring Jesus for the 1% or 2%. God brought Jesus for everybody. And the language reflects that. 
He wanted the New Testament to be brought out to everyone, the language that everybody would understand, Koine Greek. Now, the second thing that happened, and you guys are going to know this, the Romans took over. You remember that in history? There's this thing called the Roman Empire. Well, the Roman Empire starts around this time as well, in that intertestamental period, right, toward the end of it. And so the Romans take over, and the Romans did a lot of things. They did two things, though, I want to mention. They ushered in a time of history that is known as the Pax Romana. It's called Roman peace. Unprecedented peace in our world in the time when the Romans ruled. Now, was there a lot of violence to get there? Yes, there was. Was there some violence in order to keep that peace? Yes, there was. But it was unprecedented kind of peace worldwide in that part of the world when the Romans ruled. All right? So there's this Pax Romana. But here, let me tell you the other thing that the Romans were really good at. They were really good at building roads. They were really good at building roads. In fact, I have a map that shows you the network of roads that they built. Look at this. They had control of the entire Mediterranean Sea, and these are the major road routes that they built. If you look at that, it looks similar. If you put like cities and all kinds of stuff on there, it looks like a modern map, like an interstate map. Why did the Romans do that? Well, it was a selfish reason. They did it so that their soldiers and their weapons could get everywhere fast so they could control everybody. That's why they did it. But everybody else used him as well. And so as you get everywhere, here's the point. God sent Jesus in the only time in history from the beginning until recent history where that part of the world had a common language and had a road system to get people all over the place. Why is that important? Because Jesus was born in a tiny little obscure town called Bethlehem at the very edge of the Roman Empire. Not in the center, not in Rome, at the very edge in this tiny little place. Born as a baby, no fanfare, in a, laid in a manger, in a stable with animals. But at the perfect time, remember what Galatians says, at the perfect time God did this. Why? Because God knew at that moment the good news of Jesus could be carried because of the language everybody could hear it and everybody could be reached because of the language and because of the road system. It was the perfect time. The perfect time. The truth is, though, waiting is hard. It's great to talk about this in theory, isn't it? You're like, good, I get it. We, we need to wait on God because while we're waiting, God is working. I get it. But when it's personal, it's harder, isn't it? Some of you are waiting on children. I know. You've been waiting. You've been praying. You've cried over it. Some of you have been waiting for freedom from pain or freedom from a person or a situation that's been going on for years. You've been waiting. Some of you have been waiting for something to happen that you've longed for to happen 
You've been praying for it for years, maybe even decades. And you feel like God is silent. I know. Let me just tell you, God knows. And you're not the only one that has had to wait. This doesn't always bring peace, but let me just share. Abraham and Sarah had to wait 25 years to meet their firstborn. Two and a half decades. Joseph, remember Joseph? I don't even remember. I'm going back to the Old Testament. But Joseph, he heard this dream from God, and God said, Joseph, you're going to rule over people. And Joseph's like, that is awesome. Thirteen years later, that actually comes to fruition. That actually comes true. And by the way, most of those 13 years, do you remember where Joseph was? He was in prison for a crime that he didn't commit, for being faithful to God. Seriously, he ran from temptation to commit an affair with another woman who was trying to tempt him. He ran away, which is what God would want you to do. He ran from sin. He ran as fast as he could away from temptation. He got out of there, and you know what he got? He got thrown into prison. Thanks, God. That was great. Thirteen years he had to wait. And then you remember the guy who laid by the pool, the healing pool? He couldn't walk. His entire life. We don't know exactly how long, 30, 40 years maybe of his life. His entire life, he laid next to that pool, hoping to be healed. And it was 30, 40 years until Jesus walked up to him and he looked at him and he says, Pick up your mat and walk. While you're waiting, God is working. And let's be honest, God might be working something that is outside of you that needs to be prepared for you. How many of you know people need to be prepared for your presence? <laughs> right? Sometimes I'll say, I'll be right back, and my kids or my wife will say, thanks for the warning. You're welcome. Right? But let's be honest, sometimes things need to be prepared for you because they are not or it is not ready for you. You're ready, but it is not ready for you and God is working. And so you have to wait until those things are ready. Or let's be honest, can we take it to the other side of the coin? Is it quite possible that God is working on you? Oh, we don't like that one as well. As I said, I graduated college. I didn't go, out, go to college to be a pastor. I didn't graduate out of college and go right into being in ministry. I didn't because I was off on my own path, my own thing, whatever it was. I was teaching. I was doing the thing, right? And I did. God was working some things into me and some things out of me. Believe you. You did not want me to be your pastor back then. Maybe you don't now. That's cool. I can take it. What is God doing in you that needs to happen? And he's waiting. In fact, let me ask you this. Is it possible that while you're waiting on God, the truth is that God is waiting on you? Look at any other religious system in the world and you will find a religious system that says the human being always has to take the first step. The human being has to appease the deity. 
You understand this, right? Any other religious system, the person always has to appease, has to please the deity first. And then the deity will bestow blessings. Christianity, God, does it completely in the reverse. He sends Jesus, who dies on the cross, resurrects from the grave for you, takes all the first steps, and now he just invites you to take the step to the table for him. He says, just accept me. I've taken the steps. All I need you to do is take that step to me. Is it possible that God is just waiting on you? But the truth is, we sometimes think we know better. Can I say this? Man, I am, I'm so far off right now. It's okay. I have a plan, but we're, we're good, right? Can, can I say this? Man, I didn't know anybody in the whole world who were as great experts in science and everything else as I do now. Everybody's an expert now. And you know why? Something called YouTube. <laughs> and Google. You know what I've realized? We're all experts because we watched a couple of YouTube videos and they said, this is what's true. And you're like, cool. I believe it. I'm in. I'm an expert. Sign me up. PhD. Right? The truth is, sometimes we think we know better than God. There's this artist named Pianic who takes these really cool pictures. He reverses the lens in his camera and he gets these extreme close-up shots of everyday items. I'm going to show you five pictures and this is how I'm going to wrap up today. The first one, let's go to the first one. Take a look at this. See if you know what these things are. Anybody know what that is? I'm just letting it marinate for a minute. You're working it out. It's a serrated knife. <laughs> Isn't that cool? I know. These are the moments that I had. I just get to watch you guys do it. I did this like in the privacy of my office, right? I go, I scroll down like, oh, yeah. So cool. All right, let me go to the next one. See if you can guess what this next one is. Looks really cool, doesn't it? What is it? You know what it is? It's a key. Looks like it has canyons and valleys. It looks like you'd go climb that at like Yosemite or something in California. All right? It's just so cool. It's a key. All right, third one. This is a weird one, definitely. You have an idea what that is? Again, I just let it marinate. Just let it happen, right? You know what it is? It's one of those wire brushes that you use to clean dishes. Isn't that cool? They must have cleaned it before because there would have to be a lot of food on that thing because I've seen ours. All right? Next one. This is really interesting. This one's weird. Let's go to the next one. Anybody know what this is? This one's really interesting. This one's really cool. Guess what this is? Uh, probably almost all of you have this in your kitchen. It's a tea bag. You know how you have, it has to, like, the, the moisture has to get through it, the liquid has to get through it, and seep in and all. That's why it's porous, right? That's what it looks like really, really close up. All right, and then let me give you one more. This is a little bit deceiving, but uh, take a look at this one. What, what is this? I know what I think it is. I know what I thought it was. I thought it was carpet. It's not. You know what it is? Pages of a book. 
You didn't know your book was so fuzzy. <laughs> now you know. It's a cuddly thing. Here's my point. That's how we view our life and our world. You realize that, right? You see all of your life in intricate detail because you are close to your life. You get it. You see it. You see all of this in intricate, amazing detail, and it's beautiful, and it is amazing. Those pictures are awesome. But can we be honest for a minute and say that, that that's the, as far as our view can go? We see this intricate detail of our life and the lives of the people around us, but we can't see beyond that. We don't have the capability. God looks down and he sees the entire picture. He doesn't just see your life. He sees every life around you and he sees every life that's on planet earth at this moment. And by the way, he sees every life that has been and he sees all the life that will be. He has the entire picture. And so while you are waiting, God sees, he knows, and he's working. Even though it may not seem like it. So remember today, while you are waiting, no matter what it's for, and some of you are dealing with some serious waiting things. I know. God is working. God promises that he loves you. He will always love you. He's always chasing after you. Sometimes it just is on us to turn and take that step back toward him. This is how God is. The prodigal son, the father, he's not just standing, you understand. God is not just standing doing nothing. You know what he's doing? He's running to you. But if you're running from him, it requires you to stop and turn around. And God will be there because he's chasing after you. While you're waiting, God is working. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, sometimes if I was going to admit it, I have a real hard time with waiting. There are still things that I pray for that I haven't seen. I haven't seen them happen. I haven't seen you do them. I'm sure that this room is full of people who have prayed and asked for things, looking for things like the, the Israelites, like the Jewish people were looking for a Messiah, but it just doesn't seem like it's happening. For anybody in the room, anybody listening or watching online, if they are here and they have been waiting and waiting and waiting. God, I pray that you would remind them that you are there. You're with them. You love them and you're working. 
Remind them today that your promises are true and they're good. Remind them that your will is pleasing and perfect and good. It says very clearly in your word that your will is pleasing and perfect and good. Remind us today, God, that while we're waiting, it might be hard, but you are there and you're working. Something will come to fruition at the perfect time. But we must trust and we have to believe. Help us to be patient, but help us to be bold and courageous as well to take that step towards you when you ask us to because you took the first step toward us. Remind us that there's always a way. You always make a way. We just have to trust when that time comes. We pray this and we ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen.